0: For the few who remain, let's pray. (coughs) Father, there's a part of each of us that longs to have stood beside Moses at the burning bush and encountered you in the fire there. And there's also a part of us that would have been, frankly, terrified and um, terrified of what you might have asked of us there. Lord, I pray that we would stand beside Moses this morning. I pray that we would encounter you. Um, Lord, I I pray that um, the parts of you that are holy and transcendent would awe us and even terrify us in a holy way. Um, And I pray, Lord, that for the parts where you commission us, that we would have courage by your Holy Spirit. Please open your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. (coughs) There was an American novelist called E.W. Howe. And he said, one trouble with growing old is that it gets harder and harder to find a famous historical figure who didn't amount to much when he was your age. Well, today I have one for you, or at least for most of you. I have Moses, uh, because Moses' life amounted to basically nothing until he was 80 years old. Uh, Two weeks ago, we started our series in Exodus chapter 1, and we met Moses when he was just a little baby. Then last week, in chapter 2, we met Moses again when he was 40. That's how old he was when he murdered the Egyptian and fled to Midian. And now today, in Exodus chapter 3, we meet Moses once again out in the wilderness of Midian, and now he's 80. We learn that little fact in Exodus 7, verse 7. 80 years alive, and what did Moses have to show for it? Raised in Pharaoh's palace, mighty in word and deed for 40 years, as Stephen would say later, a bright future ahead of him, and then disaster, ruin, exile. A shepherd out in the desert, a wife, a couple of sons, And very little else to say for his life. That's the status of one of history's most famous men when we meet him in Exodus chapter 3 at 80 years old. So what happens next in the story is a major turning point. And what happens next is that Moses meets God. So if you haven't found it already, please turn now to Exodus chapter 3. It's page 46 of the Church Bibles, Exodus chapter 3, and we're beginning at verse 1. So we're going to look at chapter 3 in three parts, uh, to meet the God that Moses met. First, we find that he's a God of holiness. Second, he's a God of compassion. And then third, he's a God of mystery. So first, the God that Moses met was a God of holiness. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And this is obviously the same father-in-law, the same priest of Midian that we met last week in chapter 2, only there he was called Ruel. And we don't really know why he's given two different names, but perhaps Ruel was his priestly name. Uh, It means friend of God. And Jethro was his family name. But what we find here in verse 1 is that Moses, at 80 years old, was out in the desert sun tending sheep. And they weren't even his own sheep. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is the same mountain as Sinai. The name Horeb means something like parched mountain. So imagine Moses arriving at a place that's dry. And hot and dead. Verse 2 we find, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. So a bush on fire in the desert was no great wonder. That happened all the time. But it was the fact that the fire was not harming the bush that was something special. And Moses was intrigued, so he went to investigate. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So this is the moment when God and Moses meet. Introductions are made deep in the lonely desert. And this is the first time that God speaks in the whole book of Exodus. It might be the first time God had spoken to anyone for 400 years. This is a monumental first meeting at the beginning of what is going to become a long and mighty partnership. And what God wants Moses to know about him first is his holiness. He says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Even the ground is made holy by God's presence nearby. Even the ground should be honored by Moses removing his shoes. How unimaginably holy, then, is the God who has that effect on the ground. Do not come near, God says, warning that his holiness is dangerous. And Moses responds with appropriate fear when he hides his face. That is the start of their relationship. It's the first of what's going to be many, many conversations. At the end of Moses' life, the scriptures are going to say of him, there has never been a prophet like Moses who talked to God face to face. And Moses is going to see God again in even more dramatic forms, in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, in lightning and darkness and thick smoke up on Sinai, and when God's glory would descend Upon the tabernacle. And next to all those future revelations, the fire in the bush is kind of tame. But even this was enough to make Moses hide his face. It shows that Moses had a strong sense of the sacred and a deep humility before the holiness of God, and that was the right footing for their relationship. So I hope that we know when we approach God in worship or in prayer, that we are approaching a holy God. That he is pure and good and transcendent. So much bigger and better and brighter than we can imagine. So that we could not even look on him and live. This holy God has invited us to draw near to him. And in the strength of Jesus, we come with confidence, but we must never let that ease of access become over familiarity so that we forget the holiness of God, that he is a consuming fire. Or we will bring into his presence a casualness or an arrogance or a profanity that has no place there. So some of us here like to kneel when we pray, and it says the same thing as Moses removing his shoes or hiding his face. It says, God You are holy. So Moses met first a God of holiness, but also second a God of compassion. God goes on to say in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. God says, I have seen, I have heard, and I know. These are such important verbs throughout the beginning of Exodus. Taylor ended his sermon last week. Uh, with chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where it says, And God heard their groaning, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And here in chapter 3, verse 7, we find the same three verbs again. He saw, he heard, he knew. And we're not even done Because two verses later in verse 9, God says again, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Can there be any doubt in God's awareness of his people that he sees, that he hears, and that he knows? And we should quickly add a fourth verb, that God also cares That's clear in this whole paragraph that God has come down for this very reason to rescue his people who are in trouble. He's responding to their pain. Now, we might ask, why now, God? Why so late in the day? This pain's not new. The people were groaning and crying out 40 years ago when Moses tried to help by killing the Egyptian. The people were groaning and crying out, 80 years ago, when Moses was born. So most of those people would be dead already, dying without ever knowing that God heard or saw or knew about them at all. Why the delay, O God? And that's a question the text doesn't answer. And it's a question we'll probably never answer this side of heaven. But we can nonetheless affirm that God always saw and heard and knew, and that he always cared, and that he was always able to save, and that he did save when the time was ripe. So some of you today are laboring under slavery of one form or another. Maybe it's chronic, long-term pain, or disability, or mental illness that drives you to despair, or anxiety, or poverty, or addiction, or someone else actively persecuting Or constraining or abusing you, and you find yourself stuck, and you cry out to God, and God waits before saving you. Why does He wait? Why so long, O Lord? We don't know. We can't know. But what we do know is that He sees you, He hears you, and He knows. Never doubt that He knows. And never doubt that he cares. There is a plan to rescue you out of the pit. There is a plan. So hang on a little more. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. He is compassionate. And his compassion will move him to act on your behalf. So here we meet God in his holiness, in his compassion, and now third also in his mystery. We come now to the name of God in Exodus 3. And I really want to sit with this for a while and focus on it, because this is one of the most wondrous parts of God's whole self-revelation. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And that was both an answer to the question and not an answer. It's both a revelation and a mystery. So first, let's think about Moses' question. Because I really think it's quite a clumsy question. God had already introduced himself back in verse 6. He came and said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's his name. How he wanted to be known. It was enough for Moses Why would it not be enough for the people? And I think it's conspicuous that later on when Moses actually goes to the people in Egypt, not one of them asks, what was his name? (laughs) We wouldn't expect them to. It's not a very Hebrew question to ask. It's actually a very pagan question to ask, and it assumes some very pagan things. In the pagan view of the world, there were lots of gods, and they all had names. And each god was associated with a certain place, geographically bound. If there's only one god, he doesn't need a name. He's just God. Another thing about the pagan worldview is that the names of the gods were tools in the hands of men for thinking they could control that god and invoke him at their will. So this question from Moses is kind of a bit of an insult. It's like saying, who are you in relation to all the other gods and how can I control you? And what he gets back from the Lord in response is both an answer and not an answer. It is a self-revelation, something like a name, But it's also at the same time a rebuke to the pagan assumptions behind the question. So look carefully at verses 14 and 15 with me. There are three places where the ESV uses all capital letters. There's verse 14, I am who I am. Then verse 14b, I am has sent me to you. And verse 15, the Lord. In Hebrew, those three parts that are all in capital letters are related words, but they're not the same. Only the third one, in verse 15, where it says the Lord, is what we call the tetragrammaton, the name of God. If you're unfamiliar with this, tetragrammaton just means four letters, four characters. And in Hebrew, there are four characters together that are recognized as God's name. Yod, hey, vav, hey or in English, Y-H-W-H. We call it the Tetragrammaton rather than just saying the word because nobody really knows how to pronounce the word. The Jewish people didn't pronounce it. They considered God's holy name too sacred for speech. So whenever they were reading the Bible aloud and they came across the Tetragrammaton, they would always say Adonai instead, meaning the Lord. Early Hebrew had no vowels when it was written down, only consonants. Vowels were only added to the Hebrew Bible by the Masoretes in the 6th century AD. And when they came across the Tetragrammaton, they added to it the vowels of the word Adonai, because that's what readers would say. And this gave rise to the mistaken idea that the name of God was pronounced Yehovah, or Jehovah. Today, scholars agree that a much more likely original pronunciation of God's name is Yahweh, But that's still mostly a guess. Nobody really knows. The name of God appears throughout the Hebrew Bible 6,521 times. An average of once every three and a half verses in the Old Testament. And in English, we read it as the word LORD, always in caps. And it occurs throughout Genesis as well as Exodus. We understand that it's written back into the early history of Israel after Moses learned it here The burning bush so back to Exodus 3 that special name of God is there in verse 15 where it says the Lord but it's not in verse 14 in either place where it says I am the Hebrew there is related but it's different now hopefully that starts to show why God's response is both an answer and not an answer And we conclude that even the tetragrammaton isn't God's true name. It's not the fullest expression of everything God is. That name would be far too wonderful for our ears. And would probably kill us just like the sight of him would. But it's a description from God's own lips as a way to name him. And the Israelites treated even that as too holy to say aloud. I am who. I am. It rebukes the pagan idea of many gods. It says instead, I'm the God who exists. It rebukes the pagan idea that we can name the gods and control them. It says, I am the God of being, and we might much more easily control a hurricane. And the Hebrew of this phrase allows for multiple possible translations. Perhaps, I will be what I will be, or I am he who endures or he who brings things into being. All of those are possible and perhaps they're all contained in the one name, God, the living, the eternal, the one who is the source of being. So as he reads these verses, the Jewish scholar Robert Alter says, it is an ontological divine mystery of the most daunting character. And this is all very nerdy. Um, But I hope you get the sense of how this text stretches language to its very limits in its quivering attempt to name God. As Taylor said in our prayer meeting this Tuesday, don't you just get this tingling feeling when you read this text that it's just exactly the sort of thing God would say? (coughs) And if you're still hungry for a little more depth, then here are the words of Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI. He wrote, in the gesture of rebuff, we have come upon here. There is a hint of a God who is entirely different from the gods. The explanation of the the name Yahweh by the little word Am serves as a kind of negative theology. It cancels out the significance of the name as a name. It affects a sort of withdrawal from the only too well-known, which the name seems to be, into the unknown, the hidden. It dissolves the name into mystery, so that the familiarity and unfamiliarity of God, concealment and revelation are indicated simultaneously. Sorry, Kevin, for you having to sign all that. (laughs) As much as I can understand that. I think that's beautiful. Um, but let's close this discussion on the name of God by noting that the divine name is not complete in verse 15, without Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is it? Their names are part of God's name. He wants to be known forever through His people. And I think God realizes that our best way to understand Him is not through these esoteric uses of language, but through His relationships, through His promises. And through his actions in history. So he says, first and later, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Know me through them. All right, so we're going to ask our question of these Moses sermons. Where is Jesus in this passage? Where is Jesus in Exodus 3? We know that Jesus is the God that Moses met at the burning bush. Our Lord Jesus is the living one, the eternal, the one who is. And when the Old Testament uses the Tetragrammaton, the name Yahweh, we now understand it means the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But actually, it's interesting that the New Testament doesn't use the Tetragrammaton at all, and it doesn't have a Greek version of it. Instead, it uses kurios, Lord, to talk about God, and it names the persons of the Trinity directly, like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the language that we tend to follow now when we talk about God. We don't prohibit speaking or writing the name of God from Exodus 3, but we just tend to prefer more New Testament ways of addressing him. There are just a couple of places where Jesus uses Exodus 3 language about himself. And they're mostly in John's Gospel, one of them we read today. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked the guards who had come to arrest him, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Here Jesus uses the name of God from Exodus 3 and it causes the guards to fall over. So we see that he is indeed the very same God who met Moses at the burning bush. But I want to go a a level deeper and look at the symbolism that we find in Exodus 3. There's a part we haven't talked about. God appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. (laughs) Commentators have noted what a strange and humble image that is. God is a fire, that makes sense. But why the bush? (laughs) Why not at least a more glorious vehicle... At least a tree. <laughs> um, so the Hebrew word for bush here is Sene, and it means specifically a bramble or a thorn bush. Some scholars think that it's the reason that the Israelites started calling the mountain Mount Sinai instead of Mount Horeb. Sinai means thorny. It comes from se'net, the thorn bush where God appeared to Moses. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, Not all the scholars agree with that, but they don't have any better ideas, so I'm going to go with that one, Uh, Mount Sinai after the burning bush. So if it is a thorn bush, then it's specifically a symbol of the fall, isn't it, of the pain and suffering associated with the fall, because God said in Genesis 3, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So a thorn bush is a symbol of the fall, of the curse of the ground. So what we see in Exodus 3 is God coming down as a fire into the midst of a thorn bush. It's an image of God coming down into the midst of our pain. But then we see that the fire doesn't consume the bush, so it's not God's plan to end the pain completely, although he will rescue them out of Egypt, but it's more his plan to come and dwell with them in it, to be in it with them. And that's the better and brighter promise. God In our midst. The image that Moses saw was of God encircled by thorns. On the eve of salvation, when the rescue plan to get Israel out of Egypt was being set in motion, Moses saw a vision of God encircled by thorns. And on the eve of the salvation of the world, when Jesus was about to trample Satan and free humanity from slavery to sin, He was given to wear on his head, in mockery, a crown of thorns. Once again, we saw God encircled by thorns. God coming into the midst of our pain to be with us in it. But in Jesus' case, it was so much more than just dwelling with us in our pain because he had come to take our pain, to heal our pain, and to end it by his resurrection life. Hallelujah. So Jesus is the same God Moses met, the God who sees and hears and knows, and meeting him will be the turning point of our lives, just as it was for Moses. So I want to end here where we began. Eighty years without meeting God and Moses' life was nothing worth writing about. But in the years after this meeting, his life would become part of the greatest story ever told. And all that changed in between was that he met God. And all that is needed for you and me to transform our lowly, humdrum lives into lives of excitement and adventure and purpose is that we meet God. No one who has truly met God comes away unchanged. And our encounter with the living God, the eternal I am, becomes our energy and our passion and our vision. We live because he lives and we are because he is. And I would encourage you if you are still waiting to meet this God, that you don't fill up the time in between trying to do good in the world. Don't try to help the poor if you haven't met God yet, and don't try to bring justice if you haven't met God yet. Because Moses tried to do both those things before he met God, and the result was that Moses became a murderer. And friends, that is normal. People who try to do good who haven't met God usually just do harm. So if you don't think you've met God yet, then stop the good works and give your time and energy and focus to finding God. Where is he to be found? Should we all jet off to Mount Sinai? No. Uh, People are looking for God in all kinds of places, on mountaintops, in yoga studios, in horoscopes and crystals and mushrooms and meditations. And it's the right search, but it's all the wrong places. God, of course, can show up and meet us anywhere he likes, in a bush or on a mountain or speaking through a donkey. Um, But if we want to go looking for him, there's only one sensible place for us to go, and it might not sound flashy or exciting, but we should look for God in his word. We should look for God in his word. That is the appointed meeting place that he has given us. And God promises that anyone who seeks him there will find him. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces to the point of dividing joint from marrow. And friends, I can't even tell you how many, many people in my own experience and in Christian history have met God in this meeting place His word. It includes St. Augustine, it includes Martin Luther, and it includes myself. We stand alongside Moses and we meet God in the burning bush, just as we did this very morning. We meet God as he speaks to Samuel and David and Isaiah, and we meet him most powerfully and profoundly at the cross of Jesus. He waits in his word to meet you. Let's not keep him waiting.